Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. Dublina's back. I'm back. It's very exciting to have you here. I know. I'm glad to be here. It's it, good to see you again, Sarah, like in the studio. We saw each other. Yes, we, we've seen each other. On le- well, I was on leave, but it's good to see you in the studio Not again. Not in this official capacity. Correct. So tell everybody a little bit about your exciting news. Well, I had a baby. It's a girl. Her name is Farah. And she is crazy, but <laughs> wonderful. And we're just getting to know her. And, and adorable. I'm going to throw that in. <laughs> well, you can say that, I guess. I mean, if I say it, no one will believe it because, you know, I'm kind of biased. But yeah, we're just trying to learn how to be parents. We have no idea what we're doing, but, you know, you taking it one step at a time. Great. You were pros when I visited. so. Oh, yeah. We did a lot of holding and <laughs> acting like we knew what we were doing, I'm sure. Lots of lots of snoozing while I was there too. She was she was on her best behavior. I guess she was very sleepy at that time. You saw her pretty early on. Yeah, she's a little more awake now. Well, well much louder. Check in with her again then. Yes. But in honor of Dublina's return, we do all know how much you love Western history. How much you like talking about the frontier. How many times you have discussed Outlaws. Indian territory oh, yeah. on the podcast. We thought that this would be a really topic to, to discuss. It's on Jim Bowie, and it's actually a suggestion from listener Ron in L.A., but Jim Bowie is really the epitome of that sort of frontier legend. He pretty much moved with the American frontier from the day he was born, not too long after, at least. And of course, he's best known, too, as, as being a knife fighter, being a folk hero, being an Alamo legend who died with guys like William B. Travis, Davy Crockett. And really, even though he was living in the in the early 1800s, it's the 20th century that kind of built on that legend. The 50s and 60s just saw an explosion of Bowie in pop culture, just as they did with, with Davy Crockett. You think about kids in, in that time running around in coonskin Davy Crockett hats. But there's all sorts of things. John Wayne's The Alamo. There's a movie called The Iron Mistress, which I found a few clips for on YouTube. And there is a 1950s Western TV show called The Adventures of Jim Bowie. And if we only could always play crazy theme songs like this, <laughs> it would be pretty fun. But we've, we've got to go ahead and, and play it for this episode. Let's, let's listen to The Adventures of Jim Bowie. Jim Bowie, Jim Bowie, he was a bold adventurous man. Jim Bowie, Jim Bowie, battled for life with a powerful hand. His blade was tempered and so was he. Indestructible steel was he, Jim Bowie, Jim Bowie. He was a fighter, a fearless and mighty adventurous man. But the more recent scholarship on Bowie, while it doesn't exactly downplay the bold and adventurous man angle, it does draw more attention to his hot temper, the slave smuggling, and the more complicated situation in pre-Alamo, Texas, between the Texians, the Tejanos, and the Mexican government. So we'll be talking about both sides of Bowie here, the forger and the slave trader and the gator wrestling knife fighter. 
And I do have to say, before we go any further, too, this is the only subject that has ever led me to Blade magazine before. Research confessions with <laughs> Sarah Dowdy. It's a pretty great one, I think. And and another point to mention, not related to Blade magazine, is the pronunciation of Bowie, because some of you are probably thinking, Bowie? Because before this, I always said Bowie knife. And, and while Merriam-Webster does say both pronunciations are correct, the Bowie family themselves pronounced it that way. Bowie rhyming with Louie. So, gotcha. so we'll go with that. Yeah, and and that's a that's a good place to pick up because the first Bowie ancestor came to Maryland from Scotland back in 1705, and they really did start moving right away from there. Over the generations, they they wound their way down to Georgia, and that's where Jim's father, Reason, served with Colonel Francis Marion, who was the Swamp Fox, another former podcast subject during the Revolutionary War. And while recuperating from a saber slash, Reason met his Welsh bride, a nurse, and from then on, the Bowie started moving west, and they had plenty of kids along the way. James, who was on the younger end of Reason's brood of 10 total, he was born in 1796 in Kentucky, after the family had already passed through Tennessee and before they made it to Missouri. They'd clear land to sell timber or to farm turnips or distill whiskey. So they did a lot of, of yeah. <laughs> It was a mix. By the time the family got to Louisiana, they were posing as Catholics to meet the territory's requirements, and they'd become modest planters. And that's where Jim ended up growing up. He was especially close to his brothers, Reason Jr. and Stephen, and they had plenty of adventures on the bayou, hunting and fishing. Jim grew to be six feet tall and 180 pounds a manly, fine-looking person, according to his brother John. That's pretty complimentary from a brother. Uh, and they would hunt bears and apparently wrestle and rope alligators for fun. Well, that was Ju- that was Jim's territory, apparently, wrestling the alligators. Oh, I thought John was into that as well. <laughs> I don't know how the, how the other Bowie brothers felt about <laughs> gator wrestling, but... Bowie's first real taste of adventure away from home, I mean, all that sounds pretty adventurous, came a few years into the War of 1812. And as New Orleans was preparing for a British attack, James and Reason Jr. enlisted as privates in the militia. They were really gung-ho to, to go there and fight. You know, these are these are sons of a Revolutionary War veteran. But unfortunately for them, they arrived after the battle had already happened, after the British had been repelled, which ironically, and we discussed this in the Bombardment of Baltimore episode, happened after the British and Americans had already made peace. Word just didn't get out quite yet. So the Bowie boys missed that opportunity, but they did get a chance to to stay in New Orleans a little bit and experience high society there, at least whatever they could afford at the time. Uh, And they, they ultimately returned to the timber business, you know, clearing land, floating the timber down the bayou. But New Orleans in that really exciting kind of life probably made them ready to look for some other form of enterprise, some way to to rise beyond their their father's modest planter status, some kind of get-rich-quick scheme. Yeah, so just a little background here. The African slave trade had been abolished in 1808, 
but there was a high demand for slaves still in Louisiana and Mississippi. They needed labor for all the new plantations in what was at that time the West. So slave smuggling became a big business since African slaves were still arriving on ships that were bound for South America and the Caribbean, and they could be smuggled into the U.S. Sometimes, of course, the smugglers would be caught and the contraband seized. Instead of sending the people back to Africa, though, some states would then sell them at auction to fund the treasury, and they would pay the person who turned them in half of the purchase price as a reward. Yeah, so there's there's a possible loophole there, um, and the Bowie Boys decided that this loophole would be a good way to essentially launder contraband slaves. I know that sounds like a a terrible word to apply to human beings, but that's what they were doing. So they hooked up with the pirate Jean Lafitte, who is another former podcast subject, on Galveston Island. And Lafitte he, you know, as as a pirate seizing all sorts of contraband from from ships, had all kinds of things on Galveston Island. But he also did have this large slave population. He would sell them at a dollar a pound, but he wouldn't himself handle the transport or sales. You know, the the process of moving these people into the interior of Louisiana to the plantations, because that's where things got really risky. Because uh, for one thing, you're you're conducting people. For another thing, the planters might not be willing to buy because they would be buying stolen property, which, of course, could be confiscated from them ultimately. So this is where the Bowie brothers came in. They would buy slaves from Lafitte, and Jim would trek groups of them groups of 40, actually, into the Louisiana interior. And then one of the brothers would turn them in as contraband and then turn around and bid on them at auction. So they would end up getting back half the purchase price as their reward. Yeah, no matter how much the the auction price was, they were really only paying half of it. So they got these, these deals, and then they owned what were considered legal slaves, you know, not ones that were were pirate contraband anymore. So William C. Davis, who wrote Three Roads to the Alamo, estimates that each brother made about $21,000 apiece. Uh, And they they could have kept this game up a little longer, too, since Lafitte's operation did stay in business for a bit longer. But they did decide to get out of it because it was clearly risky smuggling. It was pretty unsavory even at, at the time and some of the brothers had political aspirations so they were kind of thinking of their future that doesn't mean they decided to to take the straight and narrow from from there on out though they still maintained this very loosey-goosey idea of the law yeah their next scheme was in land fraud though so they kind of got away from smuggling people around. Before becoming part of the United States, Louisiana had been passed between Spain and France. But if you'd bought Louisiana land back in the Spanish days, your grant could still be honored. The only problem was no one really knew how much had been given away, where it was, who owned it, any of those things. All you had to do was to make a claim was come forward with two witnesses who would swear that they had seen you buy it. Yeah, and and the Bowie brothers figured this out the hard way. They bought property, or Jim did specifically, under a bad title. And in 1820, you know, after a period of, of being furious about this, uh, they decided that, that this was going to be their game. They were going to try this land speculation. And uh, Congress had given grant holders, Spanish grant holders, until the end of 1820 to, to file all their claims because they were ready to, to stop having to deal with this 
antiquated paperwork. And so Bowie and his brothers started faking Spanish documents. They would make up the names of fake French Spanish settlers like Jacques Dupuis or Juan de Leon, and they would fake documents from Spanish governors that granted these made-up men Bayou frontage. And then they'd also forge deeds of sale, you know, so for instance, it would be Jim Bowie buying from de Leon or something. And all they really needed to do at that point with those two documents in hand was bribe witnesses who would swear to have seen Bowie sign the deed. And it only took $100 for each of these two witnesses. And once the land was legally in a Bowie's name, he could, of course, sell it to to squatters. Sometimes you'd even get these squatters to be your witnesses because you'd make them a deal on land they had been working and living on illegally. Once it's in my name, I'll sell it to you at a reduced price. Over the years, Bowie expanded this enterprise to Arkansas, too. The brothers, they weren't careful either. They used the same handwriting. They made errors in spelling or logistics. Sometimes the officials would wise up to this, as you would imagine that they would. But the sheer number of claims that they made, which incidentally came to be known as Bowie claims, These false claims, made it hard for much to happen there. It really did. And, and Davis believes that Bowie participated in more of this land fraud, which a lot of people were doing at the time. But he participated in more of it than anybody else. And it really is because of the, the extent of the surviving documents. It is unclear how how much Bowie did, how much was successful. It's one of the one of the mysteries, but it, it's something to keep in mind through the rest of the podcast, too, because he pretty much always has these deals going on through his life uh, or until near the end, some some degree of, of land fraud going on. But during this time, Bowie wasn't just managing these land deals. He was doing all manner of other activities, sometimes living with his brother at his Biobuff plantation, sometimes heading down to New Orleans and enjoying high society there, because even though he was this frontiersman, he was by all accounts quite charming to in, in society and could really impress people. But in 1824, he officially moved near Alexandria at the center of what's now the state of Louisiana. And there he became friends with two prominent families, the Wells and their cousins, the Cunies, even courting a Cuny cousin, Cecilia Wells. But the Wells and the Cunies, most of whom had political offices or political aspirations, were feuding with some of the other men in town, the Blanchard brothers, Dr. Thomas Maddox, Colonel Robert Alexander Crane, and Major Norris Wright, so several people. Bowie got wrapped up in his friend's political and personal disputes and soon heard Major Wright was slandering him around town. A confrontation between the two in a hotel ended with Wright shooting Bowie in the chest and an injured Bowie pummeling Wright to the ground, which is just amazing to me when you hear stories like that. People get shot and then still somehow have the... <laughs> yeah. wherewithal to pick themselves up and attack back. He sounded furious. I mean, that, that's how I read it. And, and he he really did seem like he was in the process of beating Wright to death and in the process of trying to unclasp his knife by the time Wright's friends finally pulled Bowie off of him. They, it took so much force, though, to pull Bowie off of Wright that he left behind a tooth in Wright's hand 
be that could probably not the have been comfortable. detail of this episode, or at least I hope so. That could not have been comfortable for either no, party. No, well, they did. Um, there was so much blood coming from Bowie because of that lost tooth, not from the gunshot. That Wright's camp assumed he was going to go die. Fortunately for Bowie, the the shot was not serious. It, it might have not even penetrated the skin. It was just a bruise, and he might have had a broken rib. Um, but it, it did shake him up. I mean, as you can imagine, and one of the reasons was he had been too slow on the draw. He'd had to fumble with his knife, which was clasped to his belt. And so according to the legend, this is the point where his brother gave him this long butcher type knife that he could just wear in a leather sheath instead of uh, some kind of clasped device, something he could really quickly take out and do some serious damage with. So clearly, Bowie and Wright would have to meet again, but it took a while, and plenty of other Alexandria men found time to schedule their duels with him in the meantime. But by summer of 1827, after a few failed or canceled duels between various parties, one was finally set for September 19th, 1827, near Natchez, Mississippi, on a sandbar in the river. The combatants for this particular duel would be Bowie's friend, Samuel Wells, and Dr. Thomas Maddox, but each guy in addition to bringing his second and his doctor, brought along a bunch of friends who were relegated to watch all this go down from afar. Because they knew there was going to be trouble. They knew they were essentially bringing two gangs to this isolated sandbar, and they didn't want the, the honorable duel to be interfered with. So after two rounds and no hits on either side, the, the former friends were, were satisfied with the outcome of the duel. They shook hands. They made up. They were actually in the process of suggesting everybody go out and celebrate their renewed friendship with a glass of wine when Sam Cuny, who was one of Bowie's friends, challenged Colonel Robert Crane to duel then and there. They had had a pre-existing feud. Crane had said he would kill Cuny on sight. So Cuny was just trying to get that over with, I guess. But most of the guys realized that this was not the, it was neither the time nor the place, you know, to, to be challenging yet another duel. But it was too late because most of these guys already had guns out, even though Cuny quickly lowered his own gun after the challenge, after realizing, no, this is a bad idea. Bowie had already raised his gun. And when Crane saw Bowie's gun pointed at him, he shot. And that just kicked off this gang war, essentially, on on a sandbar. Yeah, there was another shot from Crane that hit Cuny, and he bled to death. Bowie began chasing Crane and clobbered him on the head with an empty pistol. By this point, Bowie's archenemy Wright also got in on the action, and he shot Bowie through the lung. And this is where it gets kind of crazy. Because that's this point, where it gets crazy. <laughs> I think, it's already I think it, crazy. it takes it up a notch at this point. Because the Blanchard brothers join in too, and they start aiming at Bowie, and they hit him in the thigh. Which it's not the gunshot wound to the to the chest that knocks him down. It's this one to the thigh. And once he's on the ground, one of the Blanchard brothers and Wright pull out their sword canes, which I had to Google sword canes too, but it is a sword disguised in a cane. They start stabbing him and beating him with their sword canes. And so somehow Bowie managed to force himself up, grab Wright. He's gotten out his knife by this point and stabbed Wright through the heart with his knife saying, now major, you die. And even then, after such a horrifying conclusion to this fight, 
Bowie was still being stabbed by one of the Blanchards before everybody just realizes chaos had happened, calms down a little bit. It took only 90 seconds for all of this to go down, too. But it left Cuny and Wright dead. Bowie was shot through the lungs and the thigh. He'd been stabbed in seven places and was not expected to to survive. But the story became national news. So it wasn't long before this guy, who was best known as a shady land speculator, is a frontier legend with a reputation as a skilled knife fighter. So everyone wants a blade like Bowie's at this point, and I think we know where that's headed. (laughs) Yeah, we do. Although we should say, too, there is a lot of controversy over what Bowie's knife actually looked like. Um, You know, if if you look up a, a Bowie knife today, it is a distinctive shape with a distinctive handle. But according to James L. Batson, who is the past president of the American Bladesmith Society, quote, nobody knows who the hell made it and what it looked like. Uh, there's all sorts of legends tied up around this this knife, apparently. So all you we can have say, to use your imagination, well, I guess. Yeah, I think, what do you think it looks like? It's it's a long butcher knife, essentially. Mm-hmm. But but traditionally, they have a little hooked tip that makes it look extra scary. But clearly, it did some damage. And and after a, a fight like that, and after all of the the shadiness of these land dealings, it seemed like. Jim Bowie needed some new opportunities. Yeah, so at this point, Texas is beckoning Bowie, and it's no wonder because there was land to be had there, and we know how he likes land. land. (laughs) Mexico, which had gained its independence from Spain nearly two decades before this, had installed a constitution in 1824, which gave Mexican states a lot of independent power over things like immigration policies. So unsurprisingly, the more frontierish combined states of Texas and Coahuila were really welcoming to settlers from the U.S. You just had to accept Catholicism and the laws of Mexico, which did forbid slavery, and you could be granted large amounts of grazing and farming land, marry a Mexican woman, and your share was even larger. And they had Things like deferred taxes, lower prices. It was the frontiersman's dream, essentially. And, and uh, yeah, Bowie was interested. <laughs> it sounded like the, the perfect opportunity for him. And, and on his first trip, most of which was spent in San Antonio, the charming side, that New Orleans side of Bowie really came out. He, he played up all his business interests at home, made himself out to, to seem like kind of a grand man, and befriended some of the town's leading Mexican families, too, including the very wealthy Mexican vice governor of the area, Juan Martin de Vermendi. He did still have all of those business interests in Louisiana, though, so he he had to head home for a little bit. But he left for Texas for real in January 1830 with his friend Caiaphas Ham. And by late summer, he had pretty much insinuated himself into, into San Antonio society. He had really charmed everybody. Yeah, he was granted Mexican citizenship, which was conditional on him building a mill. And he also became engaged to Veramendi's beautiful daughter, Ursula. But before allowing his daughter to marry Bowie, Veramendi made his future son-in-law compile a document of his property and assets. Bowie apparently lied outrageously here. He made himself younger and richer than he <laughs> actually was. 
So maybe in interest of living up to this supposed wealth, or maybe it was just Bowie's get-rich-quick obsession, um, he started to settle on a new scheme just a few months after his April 1831 marriage to Ursula. He wanted to find the lost legendary silver mines of San Saba. Okay, so this really does sound like the craziest of his his get-rich-quick schemes, but also uh, maybe the most romantic. It's not quite forging Spanish documents, but uh, we've got to fill people in on the legend a little bit. So supposedly, nearly a century before this, Spanish missionaries had found silver ore in this area, and they'd mined it. They had hidden it in caves all before the Comanche destroyed the mission in the 1750s. And it was supposed to all still be there, waiting for for somebody like Bowie to come and find it, essentially. Uh, But the supposed mines were in very dangerous territory, so not too many people were interested in in venturing out that way. But Bowie organized a a small group of men to, to locate the treasure in November 1831. On the way there, though, Bowie's group, which included his brother Reason and his friend Ham, met up with this small party of Comanche and their Mexican captive. And one of the Comanche men knew Ham, and and they were friendly. And so the two parties stopped and talked for a little bit before parting ways. Seemed normal enough. The next morning at dawn, though, the Mexican captive came racing up to the the buoy camp, all all in a fuss, telling them that the previous day, after the two parties had had parted ways, the Comanche group had run into a party of Tawakoni, Waco, and Caddo, who said they were stalking Bowie's men and and planned on killing them and, and stealing their horses and supplies. So the Comanche couldn't do much about this, but they did send their captive out to warn Bowie about this uh, group stalking him, but also to advise him to take cover immediately, you know, even give some advice about where a good place to go would be. Bowie, though, decided he wasn't going to do that. He was close enough to feel that silver, you know, <laughs> and he was going to push ahead to San Saba instead. It ended up being a really, really bad move. So the next morning, the large party of Native Americans approached. And Reason, at this point, attempts to parlay in their own language before the Caddo began shooting. And the Caddo were hoping to kill the small group of men. And they probably would have succeeded. They probably would have quickly swarmed them had Bowie not spotted a chief by noticing his buffalo horns. So Ham shot at the chief and unhorsed him. The chief fell to the ground and was soon shot dead there. And this unnerved and disturbed the war party enough to give the Bowie party time to dig in. There was heavy fighting that went on for hours. And by late afternoon, the Native Americans had set fire to burn out Bowie's men, but they only used it to collect their own dead and wounded. Ultimately, about 50 of the Native American warriors had been killed. Only one man of Bowie's party had been shot dead, even though every single guy had been hit either by an arrow or by a bullet, and only six of them were well enough to care for the other. So it still looked pretty bleak for them, even though they had survived this attack, partly because their animals were wounded, too, and they were stuck far from, far from home 
and uh, didn't know where to go. So it took a whole week for, for them to recover, for the animals to recover enough to head back to San Antonio, where, of course, word from the Comanche about this war party had also gotten back. Everybody in San Antonio, including Bowie's wife Ursula, had given them up for dead. So meanwhile, while Bowie had been establishing himself and nearly getting killed in the process in Texas, the situation in the rest of Mexico was changing. The same year that Bowie had moved, Mexico's president closed the borders of Texas to U.S. citizens, but not to Europeans. He was afraid that Americans were flooding the state. He was also trying to start collecting customs. Many Texians were not okay with these new rules and limitations, nor were some Tejanos or Hispanic Texans. During this time, there was also conflict between Federalists and Centralists in Mexico. Federalists uh, who who wanted a, a state sort of government, uh, state and national government, and Centralists who wanted more of a dictatorship for, for the Mexican government. So this had been spreading across Mexico gradually, and it finally reached Texas by 1832, one of the outer provinces. And most of the Texians supported General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, who led the Federalists in this revolution. And Bowie, this man of action, of course, backed up his support in action, too. He was able to bluff with just a very small group of men, a Mexican colonel and his army who had been sent in to disarm the region. You know, Bowie had a had good practice by this point with, with bluffing a larger group of men. He also helped his father-in-law, Governor Veramendi, relocate the Texas and Coahuila capital away from centralist territory. But... Bowie's relationship with the Veramendis was unfortunately about to end tragically. It's probably the saddest part of Bowie's story. While he was away on business in Natchez, he caught malaria. He almost died, uh, worked on his will, all of that. He didn't get word, though, until November 1832 that while he had been sick, his wife, child, mother-in-law, and father-in-law had all died of cholera two months earlier. That is sad. So he was devastated by this late news, rushed back to San Antonio, but um, no real family ties anymore in Texas. Meanwhile, Mexico's political situation was getting even crazier. Santa Ana led an insurrection against the president and switched government ideals from federalist to centralist. The situation in Texas became even more unsettled, with some Texians still wanting to be a part of Mexico, but uh, fighting to restore some of the old, more liberal ways. Others wanted Texas to become its own republic with its own laws, including legalized slavery. Bowie was in the latter camp. So with all of these uh, different goals, different people trying to accomplish different things, a skirmish between Mexican troops sent into Texas and some of these rebels finally kicked off the Texas Revolution on October 2nd, 1835. That fall, the Texians also laid siege to San Antonio. And after this, and after the success there, a lot of the revolutionaries thought that maybe the fight was over and won. They went home to their their farms, their ranches. But Santa Ana, back in Mexico proper, was busy building up a massive army to fight both the Texians and the opposing Teanos. Ultimately, the small Texians garrison uh, that included Bowie, Colonel William Travis, and folk hero Davy Crockett, plus some Tejanos, slaves, women, and children, wound up at this old mission settlement and fort called the Alamo. 
And Candace and Jane did an earlier episode on the Battle at the Alamo. They went into a lot more details, both about the political situation leading up to it and the fight. But from Bowie's perspective, it was kind of a bust. You know, he was this renowned fighter. He was somebody who, as I mentioned a minute a minute ago, had really thrived in underdog situations. He was really sick, uh, like deathbed sick almost, maybe with typhoid, maybe pneumonia or tuberculosis. So this was not his moment to, to fight, even though he was with these men who were willing to, to take a stand here. So by the time Santa Ana and his vastly superior forces laid siege to the Alamo, Bowie was in bed. After 13 days, the Mexicans stormed the old church slash fort on March 6, 1836. And the fighting inside was particularly gruesome. It was very close quarters. Bowie was killed inside along with the rest of the garrison. And this defeat inspired other Texas forces, however. And when General Sam Houston met with Santa Ana's larger forces six weeks later, the Texians called, quote, remember the Alamo. So that's why people still very use that famous, phrase yes. today. And apparently brought their Bowie knives to battle with them. Ready to, to fight again in close quarters. Um, of course, victory at that battle eventually led to Texas's independence. And, of course, the Alamo legacy has shifted a lot in the intervening years, too. I saw so many articles on this, just trying to look at the Alamo from different angles. And one of the biggest shifts came in the 1950s, when all of this Davy Crockett Jim Bowie sort of uh, pop culture was really picking up. Um, instead of presenting the story of the Alamo as a complete last stand by Anglo-Texians only, the narrative really shifted to include more the role of the Tejanos, too, in the defense. Uh, that started to be emphasized more, although some people also say it might be a little overemphasized. People were trying to play it up too much since there were also as many black Americans present as there were Tejanos. Uh, but also, while the the battle and while the discussion about it continued to be about freedom and liberties, there were new elements that came in, too. Land grab, racial elements, that sort of thing. It became a more complicated, uh, complicated story, really. Meanwhile, the heroes of the Alamo became these pop culture sensations. A Wild West article by Paul Andrew Hutton calls Davy Crockett the first baby boomer fad. And I, I mean, I can see that. I guess if it's the, the 50s, we t- we started the episode by talking about kids in, in coonskin in hats. hats. Yep. And, and Jim Bowie plays into that, too. I, I imagine probably a lot of kids during that time pretended to be these frontiersmen. But a fun fact to close all of this out on, this episode that has included gruesome knife fights and the tooth stuck in the hand and the bloody (laughs) battle at the Alamo, David Bowie actually chose his name for both the knife and the man. Um, Throws in our pronunciation wrench again, since it's certainly David Bowie, isn't it? (laughs) But it does make sense, too. David Bowie would have been a a child of the 50s, um, and I, I I could see the... The appeal, especially for, um, uh, I don't know, somebody who's trying to, to make a career, too, in the United States, to choose this all-American sort of <laughs> frontiersman for, for his stage name. That's true. I wonder what he would think of some of the shadier sides of Bowie's personality. I don't know. <laughs> it, it just sort of adds to the cachet almost. So, okay, so now that we've gotten this full circle from Bowie to Bowie, Okay, Dublina, you ready to get to some real mail, listener mail? Yes, ma'am. 
All right, so you ready to do some listener mail, Dublina? I am. It's my first listener mail since returning. I know. We've gotten such a stack of postcards, and, and I um, did one with Kristen recently. It was from a listener who had sent us postcards from all over her family's trip to South Dakota. That would oh, have been so a, cool. a one that would maybe kind of make sense with this, but we've gotten a few other series, and we should just give a shout-out to those people. Christina, the traveling one, has sent us postcards from all over the world from uh, the spring and summer. She's been really, she's the traveling one. It's a good name, Christina. <laughs> also, uh, Kyle, listener Kyle, has sent us these really pretty postcards. A lot of them have been illustrations of places in uh, Berlin or Austria. Uh, it seems like he's had a great trip there and, and seen a lot of sights. And I especially like this one of uh, Berlin from 1828. It's more historic looking than, uh, or historical looking than a lot of the, the postcards we get. It's pretty cool. Uh, but one special one to mention in this episode is not just a postcard, it's a 3D model. Ooh. So, I don't know, Dublina, maybe we should get out our scissors after this. It's from listener Colleen, and it is of CKS Memorial Hall, which is in Taiwan. And uh, I don't know if I have the, the motor skills to, I know, <laughs> to assemble kind of this. small. <laughs> I don't think we should attempt this. It is small. Maybe we should just leave it intact. Plus, then we'll ruin the note. That's true. We don't want to lose the message and the cool stamp on the back. So um, maybe I'll take a picture of it and, and put it on Facebook instead. That seems like the better plan. So you can have lots of fun, I guess, pouring over some of these these postcards. I have a lot to catch up on, both with. I just sort of skimmed through the listener mail emails, but I have to go back and, and sort of read through those, especially the suggestions, because I saw there were some great listener suggestions while I was gone. And the postcards, yeah, postcards and letters. I have a lot of catching up and you to. And you got a stuffed animal, too. We also need to thank Sarah in Northern Ireland. Yes, she sent me a cool beanie baby, sort of a uh, memento from the London Olympics. Yeah, so... <laughs> Sarah can make friends with this uh, little, it's it's a London guard slash beanie baby slash hello kitty. Yes, <laughs> and it is currently in her room. Oh, so, so cute. Yeah. So Along a- with the elephant that you gave her. Oh, yes, I did give her an elephant. Mm-hmm. I thought it was, it was kind of history appropriate, right? I think so. <laughs> you also gave her the three bears. I did. <laughs> yes, for my book choice. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Gifts abound, it seems, and lots of fun postcards, and uh, we'll be definitely getting back to listener mail, too, now that Dibelina has returned. I felt funny including emails and things on, on some of my guest host episodes, but now that you're back, we will be uh, reading you guys' messages again on the show. So write us. We're at History Podcast at Discovery.com. We're also on Twitter. We're at Missed in History. Uh, let us know if you had your own... I don't know. I almost said David Bowie, Jim Bowie, (laughs) Uh, costume as a kid, or Davy Crockett, or I don't know, David Bowie. Sure, why not? Uh, Let us know, and we'd love to see pictures of that, too. And if you want to learn a little bit more about some of the topics we talked about on today's podcast, we have an article called Why Do We Remember the Alamo on our website, and you can look that up by visiting our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.